Welcome to the ProfServe Traction Podcast, dedicated to exploring how professional services and technology businesses break through the ceiling. Here's your host, Steve Prada. Good day, dear listeners. I'm here with Mike Lander, who is the CEO of Pisker Limited in London, UK, which helps clients negotiate better procurement contracts with big companies. He's also the chairman of ResSignal, a consultancy that drives organic growth for ambitious brands. Mike also advises professional staffing companies on organic growth, and he graduated with a degree in marketing, and then he also got his MBA in finance and strategy for Cranfield University. So welcome, Mike. Yeah, great <laughs> to have you. Great to see you. Yeah, very good. It's great to have you. You're our first European, although I don't know if you think of yourself as European anymore. <laughs> I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, good, I always good. will. <laughs> so you're a Remainer then, probably. Uh, definitely a Remainer. Definitely a Remainer. <laughs> so, so Mike, so tell me a little bit. I mean, you, you are in interesting businesses involved in several consulting firms, uh, really growth-focused. Tell us a little bit about, about your entrepreneurial journey. How did you end up here? Sure. If you go right back to when I was kind of like 16, so a young boy, very, very shy, didn't think I'd do much, lack self-confidence, let's say. Mm -hmm. And uh, at 16, I always thought kind of knew I wanted to run my own business. I don't know why, but I always thought I'd like to run my own business one day. And as you go through the kind of the journey, I started working for big companies. So I ended up working for some very big companies, people like Barclays Bank and KPMG. Uh, So really big firms. And uh, that was up until the age of about... 30, somewhere around there, probably, uh, maybe 36. And as I went on that journey of working with big companies, you learn really good skills about how do you operate inside big companies, governance, process, systems, discipline, hierarchy. And although they sound awful and bureaucratic, they're great skills to learn. (laughs) And then I went freelancing. So an interesting kind of like, uh, I guess, snippet for uh, for your listeners is, you know, I, I went independent um, in about, wow, 2002, I guess, 2000, 2002. And I thought I was building a business and I wasn't. I was being a freelancer. People wanted Mike Lander. They wanted to use me as a, that, at that time, a kind of project manager. I was a very good project manager. And that's what they wanted. Yep. And when I learned that, it made me really think about, don't fool yourself that you're building a company if you're just a freelancer. Being a freelancer is absolutely fine. It's a great life, but don't think you're building a company. And so in 2006, I'd been working with a company as a freelancer. They were the consulting company. I was their freelancer and they were looking to sell the company. And I over lunch one day to the guy that owned it, I said, I'll buy it off you. And he kind of choked (laughs) on his food and said, but you've got no money or not enough to buy it. And I said, well, if I can find the money, would you sell me the company if we get to the right deal? And talking to his business partner, they in the end, they agreed. And it was the first time that I'd really moved from being an independent freelancer into owning a company. And I bought that company. I raised several million pounds from banks in the UK back in 2006, 2007. And I bought their company. And I ended up running, we had about 120 consultants at one point. We ran a 50 million pound government contract. We'd upsold... 10, 15 million pounds of the contract value. It was, it was a, by, by anyone's standards, it was, it was quite a big consultancy. And I was the, at that point, virtually the 100% shareholder and the chief exec. So I kind of yes. went from being a freelancer to yeah. being an entrepreneur at some scale. 
<laughs> did, yeah, well, there a lot of skills. So that's definitely a fascinating story. And, you know, we have some things in common. So I started my career with KPMG, actually in London. Ah, I was at KPMG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we missed each other because I was there from 1991 to 94, and you came yeah. after me. 96. I came in 96, yeah. And I also, you know, my company that I founded, the original idea was to make, uh, to focus on buyouts and helping people like you buy out companies, yep. which was from the 2002 uh, onwards. So got some, some things in common. So my question is about how you pulled it off. I mean, 130 people, <laughs> 50 million contract. So yeah. surely uh, they don't give, even if this company is indebted, if it's in trouble, you're not going to get it for free. So no. how, how did you raise the money and how, how did you get how your own equity into the deal? It's, it's a great question, Stephen. There's some key things. Some of it was based around long-term relationships and some of it was just based around yeah, I understood what I was doing. I was very prepared. So a few things. The company I bought was owned by two guys that were at KPMG. I'd worked for one of them. He was the partner. I was the consultant. And I'd worked for him for about three or four years. So I had a strong relationship with him. And so when he came to say with his business partner, we want to sell, a lot of businesses when they sell, and it's a trade sale, because mine was effectively a trade sale to a, a trade buyer, and they're nervous about who they hand it over to. Because they want to leave it in good hands. And as you know, Steve, when you sell a company or you know, someone does a buyout, the, the, the owner can be slightly nervous about what's going to happen next. And because they knew me really well, it helped the deal go through. It definitely helped those tricky nights when it was very dark. Mm-hmm. I remember one negotiating evening with the owners and me as the buyer. And we walked into a room and I said, um, can we turn the lights on? And he said, no, no, no. I want it nice and dark. And you think, wow, okay, (laughs) this could be a tough meeting. (laughs) And it was a tough meeting. And so that helped get through those dark hours because the relationship helps you you stay on track. Whereas I think if you don't, if you're buying a company and you don't know the owners and you've no relationship at all, very difficult to make that deal work. Second thing is, I think the MBA really helped. You know, I'd, I'd understood through the MBA. I came into the MBA as an engineer, project manager engineer, And I came out as a project management engineer with finance, marketing, and strategy skills on paper, not in practice, but certainly on paper. And so the ability to structure a cash flow and understand how you value a company based upon a discounted cash flow basis, you know, those basic things became really valuable because it helps you price the asset that you're buying. And so I think that was another thing. And then the, the third thing I think is, so I don't believe in luck, but what I do believe in, if you work really hard and you persevere, and when opportunity knocks, you open the door and you see what's in there and you keep doing it, eventually the right things happen. You'll have quite a few mistakes along the way, but the right things will happen eventually. But one thing that did happen was timing. In 2006 in the UK, this was just before the crash. Remember, Steve, before it all went really horribly wrong in the markets? Yep, 2008. Yep. So in 2006, the banks were looking to back entrepreneurs. They wanted to get cash out of the door backing entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And... I found, the, I found the bank I worked with at that point in that mode. And so I managed to raise you know, several million pounds worth of debt from the bank to support buying of that business. And that was, that was timing. And interestingly, yeah. I think if you look at a lot of the research that was done over the, over, you know, the last 20 years about why, why companies are successful as they grow, what's the kind of the overriding factor, a lot of the research points to timing. 
You know, people say it's the founders or it's the capital or it's the IP or it's the, a lot of it actually is about, yes, but it's not sufficient. You need a market that is ready for your proposition at that time in a growing market that's expanding. That's true. So often venture capitalists call this the vintage. So there are certain years which are good vintage years for investments. Right. And there are other, you know, most years are not good vintage years, but so that was a good vintage year. I remember 06, 07, I was running an MA boutique and it was a very, this, this was very good years. I mean, the best right. years we had uh, in the 2000s. Get, yeah, you could raise capital in those markets. Yeah, uh, people were very optimistic and a lot of money was looking for a home. So definitely was a good time. So what happened afterwards? You acquired this business. How did you turn it around? How did you, uh, what did you do with it? So when I, uh, when I took it on, it was in great shape. The guys that had run it had run it really, really well. I mean, they, these guys were clever guys. They'd run it really well. It was profitable. Uh, it, had, it had brilliant consultants working for it. And I managed to double it. So I, I doubled it in size, 220 consultants. And I, I did it really following their model. I had a consultancy business where all of my consultants were freelancers, all of them. No employees at all. Wow. So as I found work... I found great contractors and I gave them work. And when the work stopped, the contractors went away. Mm-hmm. So you have this completely floating cost base, which makes you very resilient to any shock. True. And what they've done is, once, so again, an interesting lesson for your kind of listeners maybe, is there's something about a critical mass of experience that's really important in your kind of staff base, be that permanent staff or be it contract staff. What mm-hmm. happens is, the organism creates a bit of a life of its own. And if you build a high-quality organism, if someone comes in from the outside that doesn't fit, the organism automatically rejects them because mm-hmm. it will infect the rest of them. They want to their culture. And so yeah. I, I bought this business when it had like 60-odd consultants. So as I scaled up, everyone knew another consultant who was brilliant. No one would refer someone to me who was a bad consultant because it would infect the rest of them. So I have this massive pool of talent because if one consultant knows two consultants, well, if I've got 50, I've got access to a talent pool of probably 100, 150. That's what happened. We won a project and we needed 40 consultants within about six to eight weeks. We found them. High quality, ex-KPMG, Ernst & Young, McKinsey, Booz, A.T. Carney, really high quality people because my people knew them. And we had these big contracts. So we were very attractive to work with. Mm-hmm. Was it profitable? So when yeah. you outsource everything, is it still profitable? Really profitable. <laughs> yeah. Very, so, very. So what happened next? I'm, I'm getting uh, very curious. What happened next? <laughs> so this is good. It's all, it's all part of the story arc. <laughs> so now, now comes the, um, the clouds turn up and the dark mm-hmm. days turn up. So I thought I was master of the universe. I thought I could do anything. You know, yeah. I thought I was a genius because I I'd, I'd, I'd managed to double the size of this company. And then uh, the world gave me a dose of reality, which was the contracts we were working on were big government contracts. And as you all know, Steve, you know, those contracts come to an end. So you've got this massive dependency on these very few big clients and your public sector only. So you must yeah. diversify. You have to diversify. And so I went on a diversification strategy And the plan was, as these contracts went down, the other ones would go up, the crossover would be the midpoint, and it would all be great. And so we expanded into the Middle East, 
that's probably a podcast in itself. If any of your listeners are thinking about going into the Middle East, I yeah, by all means, drop me an email. I'd be very cautious indeed. I've got lots of friends from the Middle East. So culturally, I think it's a, it's a beautiful place to be. In business, there are some golden rules you need to abide by or else it will go badly wrong. So I expanded to the Middle East. And then also I got into the schools business. We were in education consultancy. So through a bunch of advisors that I'd worked with, they all thought it would be a brilliant idea for us to buy a school because you get this annuity income effectively off the back of this asset. High barriers to entry, because it's high capital barriers to entry and regulatory barriers to entry. When you're in, the pupils tend to stay with you. And then uh, another lesson in my entrepreneurial life, never, ever, ever buy into a sector that you don't really understand really, really well. You will come badly unstuck unless you've got a lot of capital that you're prepared to in, in, you know, deploy to get yourself out of trouble. It will probably go badly wrong. And I didn't know anything about running schools at that point. I know a lot now. And so, yeah, it took me quite a long time to learn how to do it effectively, what the issues were. And basically, we got into trouble. So I then had the bank on my back. We had more debt. I paid the first tranche of debt off in two, three years out of cash flow. Second tranche of debt that we took on was not that way. Company got into trouble. Uh, we had good cash reserves, but all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the pitch started looking quite dark and I had to work with the bank on a recovery plan. So I had to restructure my own business, strip out all the, I had a few central people, like five or 10 people. I had to restrip, you know, strip those out, change all the offices and it, it restructured the school's business and the consulting business. So yeah, very, very hard lessons. But then I came out the other side the consulting business by that point had dropped off and I built a new schools business and then I ended up selling that schools business. I ended up with 100 staff, 45 pupils, special needs school, and I sold that to some private investors. So it came good in the end, but my word, it almost killed me. Wow. And what happened with the Middle Eastern division? Did oh, that just go away? I closed it down. <laughs> we spent three years in the Middle East on contracts and uh, I closed it down. And that's because... I think rightly, the Emiratis expect you there for the long term. If you turn up and expect to make a fast buck because of lots of money out there, because of the sovereign wealth and the oil assets, uh, you would be sadly mistaken. It's a very, very difficult climate to do business in because there's a language barrier and there's a very strong cultural barrier. And they are rightly fed up with expats coming in, earning big salaries, having a great time and going home. And I don't blame them. They're fed up with that. And I think we're going to see a lot of changes in the Middle East about how they operate their economic environment. Mm -hmm. So, so you sold uh, the school business, which yep. kept its own, and then what happened next? Yeah, so I'd sold that. Whilst I was in the back end of kind of running it and then selling it, uh, I started a uh, procurement consultancy with a friend of mine, which is basically, it was all about stripping cost out of a supplier cost base for a big company. So we used to work with private equity-backed companies, so you know what that kind of land looks like. So for your listeners that some of them may not, private equity company, so big VC basically, turns up and they buy a company and they deploy 100 million pounds of capital and they expect in three to five years time between two and 300 million back. So a two to three times return over a three to five year period. And obviously they place that money into several companies and across the portfolio, that's the average return they expect. So we used to work with private equity backed companies that were big and we'd go in and we would look at their cost base or their supplier costs. Let's say there's 10 million pounds of supplier costs. And we would renegotiate all of the supplier contracts 
and we'd on average get between 10 and 20% savings on that supply base. So you take 10 million down to 9 million. Well, that million pound of difference, if you're a private equity-backed company, you're selling for between 10 and 15 times EBITDA, net profits. So 1 million pound of extra EBITDA gives you 10 to 15 million pound of extra value. Yep. So the PE companies loved us. It's like, this is great. And so I did that for a number of years. And then we sold that to another consultancy company who specialized in exactly the same thing. So what was the size of the business when you sold it? Oh, it was tiny. It was like four of us, four or five of us. Mm -hmm. It was very niche, very specialist, profitable, but very niche. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the founders, me and Steve, basically we, we ran it and we kept it small for a number of reasons. We didn't want a big consultancy that it's very hard to win lots of those kinds of deals unless you're at scale. It's that kind of, you can't go from being four or five people and then just become like 30 or 40 people in that private equity market. If you work with investors that are VCs, private equity companies, when you've done it, you realize quite how tough that world is. Unrelenting. I used to to rock up with the PowerPoint slides at the beginning, Steve, and the portfolio partner would say, Throw away your, your, your PowerPoint slides. I don't care about them. Get out your spreadsheet and show me the numbers because I'm an accountant, I'm a finance guy, and I want to make sure we're making money. And after that, I always walked in with my spreadsheet, never a PowerPoint slide. Yeah, that's the life of finance in London, isn't it? Um, it is. Lots of numbers, lots of uh, spreadsheets. Yeah, and pretty aggressive. And yeah, aggressive and uncompromising. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the business. So, uh, so tell me a little bit about, and then you sold that company, and then uh, yeah. then you then founded Piscari, and there was also yeah, rest right. now. So what yeah, happened? So, uh, yeah, so what happened was, I worked with that consultancy company for a couple of years, two or three years, and then I mean I'm now 56, so I left them about I think four years ago, three four years ago, somewhere around there, and wanted to do more of a kind of a portfolio of work. So uh, I started working with Resignal, uh, SEO, uh, organic SEO and uh, content company. We work with quite big brands uh, and I work with the chief exec. So I'm now their chairman. He's the chief exec. We get along really well. It's very much a partnership. And um, yeah, so that's worked very well. So I enjoy that because it's advisory work. And then I also uh, am involved in a business we founded, which was an architectural and interior design business. So we help people basically design beautiful homes for themselves. And then for the other part of my time, um, I run Piscari. And I, I sat down one evening uh, with my wife on the sofa. She's highly creative, very, very good business person. And she uh, had run her own businesses. And she said, we were wondering like, kind of what to do. And she said, you've had all this experience as a procurement director, buying lots of stuff for big clients, negotiating with small people. Why don't you turn it around? Why don't you help smaller companies negotiate better deals with big companies? And I said, it's a great idea. Wonder if it'll work. And I went out and talked to a bunch of um, SMEs that I knew and clients. And it's now turned into, you know, a couple of years later, basically, I, I, one of the things I run now, the core of what I offer is I run a negotiation skills and procurement insights program where I help smaller companies. I train their sales teams, their commercial teams about what do procurement people look like? How do they negotiate? I train them in negotiation skills foundations to make them better negotiators. So when they go into these bigger brands, as they're starting to grow, they're going to negotiate much better commercial deals. So Mike, that's, that's fascinating. So tell me a couple of things that someone who is growing a brand, an ambitious brand, as you call it, that want to be successful working with 
with Amazon and big chains, I don't know, Walmart, other big yeah. department stores. How do they go about not lose their shirt on those deals? Okay, so there's a few things. So let me just kind of think about three things. First of all, understand that if the deals of any material size, Amazon, take it as an example, will have professional buyers on their side. That's what they do for a living. They will have professional buyers on their side. So be aware you're dealing with a professionally trained negotiator. That's what their job is, to get best value for their client. Yeah. Number, number two, preparation. The biggest failure of all entrepreneurs that grow their companies that I've worked with, and I've worked with hundreds over the years, is the failure to prepare because we're too busy. If you walk into a negotiation with Amazon, thinking as the owner, I know what I'm doing, I know what my margins are, so I won't move, and you don't prepare a negotiating strategy, and you don't research who you're going to go and talk to, and what the competition looks like, and what your differentiator is, and what the five points of the negotiation are rather than the one which is price, you will get taken apart piece by piece. Mm -hmm. So understand their professional bias. Secondly, prepare really well. And the third one, which is really hard to do, <laughs> takes some practice, is become emotionally detached from the deal. Mm -hmm. So you've been involved in M&A, Steve, quite a lot. So I, I learned this from a guy I, I met many, many years ago who was an ex-IBM salesperson, sold 10, 20, 30 million pounds of the deals. And he said, Mike, the moment you become emotionally attached to the outcome of a negotiation, you're doomed. You've lost the deal. You might win a contract, but not on the right terms because a smart buyer will recognize that you want it too much. That's so you must always re remain emotionally detached from that deal until the contract's signed. And then you can have a small celebration until you start delivering it and the quarterly business review turns up around your SLAs and KPIs. Right. So you won't have much of a honeymoon. Not much. <laughs> but but I, I definitely share your experience. The, I mean, as an M&A advisor, yep. one of the value add that we brought to the table was that we were emotionally not attached. To some extent, we were attached to the success because we wanted yeah. to make the deal happen, but not to the extent uh, of the buyer or the seller. Exactly. So we could actually hear things that the emotional buyer or seller was saying and could translate it to what is the real issue and could help each, the two parties see each other's positions and perspective and understand and feel less upset about things. Correct. And that was, that was one of the main roles that we played in these transactions. And so whenever a seller would want to go it alone, often the buyers were trying to uh, seduce the seller to right. uh, fire the advisor because they felt that because they were the professionals, yeah. if the you know if the vulnerable seller was there, then they could basically wipe the floor with them. Correct, and they would. Yeah, there's this thing that happens in negotiation, and you've described a very good illustration of that. The buyer will draw you in to making you feel really warm and comfortable, and all the bits that don't really matter in a deal, they'll agree on, and it'll all be really nice and comfortable. And the headline price will broadly be agreed, broadly. And they'll draw you in. And what happens is, as a seller, you get drawn into this conversation. I'm doing one at the moment. I'm also a deal advisor. Small deals, I help my clients sell their businesses because of the negotiation skills. And they draw you in, and then they'll see you tip over the edge of spending the money. 
in your eyes, they will see you've just bought the car, you've bought the holiday, you've bought the new house that you've been working for for 25 years, building your business, so rightly you should deserve it. And they see that. And in that moment, I call it the Columbo technique. They go, there's just one more thing. Hmm. And it's the biggest thing on the table. And it's not the only thing. There's going to be three or four of those. And they take the, the, the seller apart. And the seller goes, I want it so much now that they carry on. They accept it. And they accept unreasonable terms because they're emotionally yeah. attached. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's the, I think it's called the law of consistency that you, it's really hard to be inconsistent with what you already said yeah. or how you behaved. And that's right. Plus, you feel like a fool if the thing doesn't happen that you told right. all these people You're and telling all your friends. Pressure. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a thing. So let me ask you, kind of take uh, the switching gears here. Yeah, I'm always looking to understand the the framework, the business model that drives these companies. So c- can you describe me a little bit what was the business model of your big consulting that you bought out? Yeah, I understand generally that you had consultants, you had contract contractors, big government contract, and so on. But how did you manage this this business? How did you manage all these people in this business, especially if they were not employees, they were coming yeah. and going? How could you you know deliver quality and and make sure that things were working well? So if I look at two things about one, how do you deliver quality? And then secondly, what are the value drivers? So the first in terms of quality management, what had become very interesting with that company was there was, a, there was an ethos of um, high quality service delivery because of where they'd come from. It was no mistake that all our consultants had come from big consulting firms. You kind of had to have come from there to get in. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't an exclusivity thing. That was, we knew that if you'd gone through three or four years in a big consultancy firm, you have the discipline and rigor that we needed to deliver the quality. Mm-hmm. You also knew that you knew how to write slide packs. You knew how to tell a business story in logical terms. You knew how to test a hypothesis. You knew how to roll out large scale programs. So all of that comes with people that have been through those big companies because it comes with the territory. And so that was one way that you manage consistency is that you look for people with very similar experiences. Didn't matter, you know, their ethnicity, didn't matter where they uh, country of origin, didn't matter what sex they were, it's irrelevant. That benchmark was, have you worked in that kind of environment? Yes, you have. Then it's highly likely you're fit. The second thing, right. the second, second way you, uh, you manage quality is peer-to-peer. Because you've got these people that had all worked in professional services firms, you all knew what, what great looked like. I had workstream leads that ran each of the workstreams, and then I had kind of big program leads that ran the big programs. Mm-hmm. And those workstream leads, their job really was to, you know, um, obviously set the environment, be leaders, but also set the kind of quality framework and peer-to-peer review of materials. And often we'd do it between workstreams. So one workstream would present to another about what they were doing, and then you'd get feedback. So we, we had a very, very strong feedback culture. You know, all feedback was good feedback. Nothing was ever personal. The golden rule in my consultancy was, it's not personal. If what you've d- delivered doesn't meet the benchmark, then we just need to enhance it and improve it. Because there might be an, a knowledge area that you don't have. It might be that you've got too much on, so you've not had the time to focus. So <laughs> we'll all help each other get the right outcome. And it worked really, really well. 
So what about the strategy? Was it just your own? Did you alone drive the strategy and decide it? Or do you have, did you gather input and how did you do that? At our peak, we were about 20 million turnover uh, of fee income. So it's a, a big concern at that point. And what I did was I, I built a board, basically. So I knew the value of boards. I hadn't had one, but I knew the value of one. And so I built a board uh, which consisted of two non-exec directors, one uh, very experienced finance director who was part-time, one day a week for me, two days a week for me. And then I eventually moved up to chairman and also appointed a chief exec. In hindsight, that was a mistake. I think a lot of founders, as they grow, you know, want to move out of the chief exec role into the chairman role. And for a very good reason, when you sell your company, again, as we both know, you do not want to be the person heavily involved in day-to-day running of the business. That's number one. If you, you want to you sell are, a self-managing company. Correct. You have to be able to sell. And when I sold my company, it was self-managing. I was chairman, it was self-managing. But at that time, it made me too detached from the business because the chief exec ran the business. So they ran inwards and I looked outwards. And strategy was developed by the board. I own the strategy as chair of the board. Um, but yeah, that's what we did. And I, going back, I wouldn't do the same thing now. I'd have changed that. I'd, I'd have had the advisors. I think non-execs and advisors can be really valuable. I think you need to understand what you what gaps you've got because sometimes you want people out of sector but very experienced. I think quite often you want people that understand your sector, the dynamics of your sector, and have done something at a bigger scale. I, I think this whole... There's a whole world around um, coaching. I've got certain views, Steve. It might be yours or might not be yours, but it's my view, so I'll stick to it, which is <laughs> coaching versus mentoring. I think most, most entrepreneurial companies, they need more mentoring, people that have been there and done it, than they do the appreciative inquiry approach, which is coaching. Mm-hmm. They need discipline, structure, rigor, like the EOS men, you know, uh, methodology. They need something that's got rigor in it and they need people that are deploying that to have experience because they don't know what they don't know. So the idea that a coach that's content free can coach an owner of a 10 million turnover SME to get them to 20 million when all they're doing is just asking questions without any frameworks, business frameworks, I think would be bizarre, I think. Yeah, when I work with SMEs, I, I'm brought in because they see something in my past that I've done that worked or didn't work that they want to shortcut. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, there is, it's kind of a myth about coaching and, and definitely there are some people that have issues and they have to work them out and they need someone that they can confide in. Definitely. And it often happens with small entrepreneurs that you know they have no one to, to talk to. Uh, they feel isolated. Their spouse doesn't want to hear anything or maybe their spouse is nervous about the business. So yes. they don't feel like they can share things. And then definitely a coach who gives ask the right questions, help you work through issues is, is helpful. But when you get to a, a level when you're no longer this uh, small uh, few people company, uh, especially when you come up from a niche and you have to start to compete with bigger boys and girls, then yep. definitely you need the uh, frameworks, you need mentors who've been there, done that. It's interesting, a sports analogy, you see tennis players who break into the top 50, the top 20, the top 10 even, yep. and then they hit the, hit the ceiling and they realize that they need a mentor. They need, you know, they need uh, John McEnroe or, or they need Ivan Lendl 
to yeah. come in or Boris Becker to help them get through this, you know, how to grieve in a grand slam. What's the mindset? How exactly. do you prepare? How do you fight off the intimidation and all that stuff? Yep. I like the distinction. This is very helpful. Good. So, so what are the business frameworks that you see are helpful? So you mentioned that it's mentoring business, bringing the framework. So can you speak to about a couple of frameworks that you have seen that you found yeah. helpful in your career? So I, um, I like frameworks. I'm an engineer by training. Uh, and so frameworks, processes, methodology, they kind of work for me. So a few that are, I think, invaluable in the toolkit. So one, a sales pipeline. You need stages in your sales pipeline. You need gates in your sales pipeline. The gates have to have criteria. So when you go from marketing qualified lead to early sales qualified lead, to get through the gate, you have to tick some boxes, certain size of opportunity, certain size of company. You know, we're talking to someone who might be a decision maker, we're not sure. They might have a problem around now, we don't know, we've seen something in the press. You need something. So as, as a simple framework, if you don't have a sales process and you don't start using something like, I don't know, Hubs, HubSpot, you know, Zoho, whatever you want to pick, you know, Salesforce, heaven forbid. But, you know, if you don't have some kind of sales, sales CRM with a pipeline management system in it, you will not be able to manage your business. You can't grow it because once you've got past five opportunities in your head or written down on your desk, it stops working. What were the notes? What did they say last? Where are we in the sales cycle? It's complex. There's five people in this company. We've got to go and talk to all five of them. You need to keep track of it. And so that's one thing, definitely. The second thing Plus is- you might be leaving the company and someone will take your place and they will have exactly. to take your institutional knowledge. Exactly. Um, to, Correct. You know, to go forward. You cannot carry it in your head. Yeah. yeah. So you have to have a sales process at some point. You have to. Second, a big thing of mine, cash flow management. In those early years, as you grow- Cash flow is king. If you can't manage your cash flow, you will die. And the problem is you won't know you're going to die until you're dead. And what often happens is as you grow your business, you win a bigger contract. Let's say, Steve, that, you know, let's say one of your clients is doing, um, you know, 20K a month a business. So they're, they're running a business like 250K, probably a bit small for you. Let, let's, say it's, um, let's say it's a million a year that they're running. Okay. And they win a contract that's worth half a million pound a year. And it's with Amazon, say. But Amazon's payment terms are 90 days on month end. So you're out of cash for 120 days, and then you've got to chase them. So let's say it's half a year of cash, say. So during that time you're delivering that half million pound contract, you are 250,000 pound of cash out of pocket. You're not because it's, it's at cost. Let's say our margins are half, say. Yep. You're 125,000 pound of real Amazon, you're not going to get a half. You're not going to get half. <laughs> you might wish to. You're over 100,000 pound out of cash. And what happens, I think, is as companies, they win these big contracts and there's a big hooray and we won it. It's fantastic. And everyone's like, brilliant. And then we recruit some people and then we start delivering. And then, you know, someone in finance starts saying, um, <laughs> we're going to become insolvent very soon if we don't collect some cash. And, and that, I think, cash flow management in high-growth companies is critical. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I had a client a couple of years ago who were growing really fast. They were contracting, a construction, contracting, service company, and they were growing fast. But because of the fast growth, 
essentially the CEO who was the chief salesperson, they, he couldn't keep up with making enough sales. So they signed up with, uh, with a company called Contractor Connections, right. which was basically a you know, lead generation company. And they took, essentially they took a piece of their margin, a big piece of their margin. The second issue was that because there was no personal connection, uh, those customers started to play slower than the existing customers. So they ran up a big receivable balance and they started borrowing and then the com- you know the, the bank stopped lending to them and essentially they had to slim the company down and they almost yeah. went out of business exactly they had to slim the company down and then they they abandoned this contractor connection service because they realized that it was not bringing them high quality where they proprietary opportunities where they could get their terms and they just had to acknowledge that they will be on a slower growth path because they had to manage their cash flow that's right absolutely so, yeah. And there are hundreds of companies, thousands of companies following very similar stories. Everyone will say, oh, no, I can, um, I'll invoice discount. Well, yeah, you might be able to. Depends on the quality of the, um, of the client on the other side. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's that thing that you have to manage carefully. And when do you invest in people? You know, you need cash reserves to be able to do that. So that's the second one. I think the third one, you know, something I always come back to, Steve, and it's an age-old model now. It's a strategy model, which is Porter's Five Forces. You know, it's so simple. You know, it's got kind of five bubbles. Um, but when you think about that and you just like take some data that you've got on, you know, in your head or from the web or wherever you've got it from, it does help you think about the industry dynamics that you're working in and about the power of the buyer versus power of supplier. And, yeah. you know, the dangerous things are if you are a, so another tip I'd say to your audience is do not operate in, in the commodity markets. Whatever you're in, do not become a commodity. Commodity. So I'm, I'm quite a fan of Blair Ends, the Two Bobs uh, podcast. Uh, I've spoken to Blair a few times. And, you know, absolutely. He's like, become focused, become niche, find your space, become differentiated. If that limits your growth, but it's profitable and you're growing slowly, but you're growing well, much better than trying to be, you know, if you're in marketing, you know, trying to be a WPP. You know, we're going we're, we're to become the next WPP. Well, you might, it's possible. But I wouldn't advise it as a strategy to start growing your business. I'd, I'd, I'd niche down. Look at my proposition, Steve. You know, you talked before. You know, what I do is I work with SMEs, particularly marketing agencies, recruitment agencies, IT services companies. I help them negotiate better deals with their customers. And I provide deal support because I know those sectors. I know those skills. That's a niche proposition. I'm quite hard to um, compete against because I've really niched down. <laughs> I'm yeah. small. But I'm very compact. <laughs> yeah, in your niche, you are big. So yeah, so as a generalist, you're small, but in your niche, you may be a giant. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, a few years ago, I, I represented a company which was a really small player, like $5 million of sales revenue. But they were in a niche of the auto industry. And in their niche, they had a 50% market share in, wow. in Hungary. This is in Hungary. And they could not be beaten. They had high margins. Yeah. They had close to 50% EBITDA margin. Super business. They couldn't grow the business because the market yes. was limited. But, but it's a brilliant business to own. It's a brilliant business to own. It's fantastic. It I think their challenge was that they were too dependent on a single customer. Yeah. Sometimes that also happens when you're in a small niche that Dangerous. you become too uh, concentrated. So that they had to manage that. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, every business has its issues, right? Yeah. Yeah, so this is this is fascinating. So if you look back on your career, I mean, you you had some really uh, interesting um, 
um, successes and failures, like an entrepreneurial career. So if you look back like 20 years, what would be the advice you would give to your, I don't know, 30, 35 year old self uh, as to how to move forward? (laughs) So a few things that I think, and I've got, I've got a son, you know, so Leo's, Leo's eight. And so it's very relevant because you, you, whether he takes the advice or not, you need to at least know what the advice might be when he says, what would you do? <laughs> okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's a few things. So I think firstly, whatever you're doing, you have to have a real passion for it of some kind. You know, you're in business a lot every day, every hour, weekends. You have to really enjoy that thing that you're doing. There has to be some kind of greater purpose, some kind of passion. So for example, in my spare time, I read books on negotiation. My wife thinks I'm crazy. It's because I love it. I find it fascinating. I find it really interesting. So yeah, make sure you're doing something that you're passionate about. Don't stray from that. Don't get into things that you don't really understand and you're not passionate about, number one. Number two, I think don't get into areas that you don't understand and bet the farm. When I say bet the farm, don't put all your savings into some adventure that you think is exciting, but you don't understand what on earth the dynamics are of that sector. That's a bad investment. Number three for me would be around specialism. I think in the world now whereby the web is ubiquitous, knowledge is uh, everywhere. Some of it false, some of it true. So you need to have some kind of specialism to stand out. You know, Pat Flynn, who has a podcast, um, talks about an inch wide and a mile deep. And, Mm -hmm. And he's right, I think. You know, pe- people buy really deep specialisms now from entrepreneurial companies. So you need to be passionate about something in an area that you kind of understand and you need to be focused. And I think if you've got that, I think I think learning to be a general manager these days, I think that's, uh, I'll stick my neck out. I, I think it's a little bit pointless. Sure, if you want to go and work for General Motors, if you want to go and work for GE and be a GM, yes, you will need to have covered all the bases, finance, strategy, ops, sales, marketing, etc. And there's nothing bad about that, but it will make you a general manager. And in these days with a global, globally accessible workforce that's flexible, those, I think those roles will be fewer and fewer and fewer. You know, if you want a sustainable life that generates a good quality of living, have some kind of specialism that you focus in. Yeah. So those are probably three of mine, I think. That's that's pretty cool. So, so you talked about mentoring being so important. Uh, did you have mentors yourself? Yes, I've had a, a, along the way, I think several. Uh, interesting, when I was a young boy, uh, there was a guy that was in the family that was a lecturer at one of the local colleges. Uh, he sadly died a long time ago. But he was brilliant because he believed in me. And uh, I found it very hard to get, when I was 16, <laughs> I went for several interviews. I left school at 16, didn't do any qualifications at that time. I did mine later. I went for job interviews. I was told by one company, you're not very bright. You're not very capable. We don't think you'll be able to do much apart from sweep the floor. You know, that has quite a damaging effect on a 16-year-old boy who's not got any confidence. So Eric Dearman, this guy who was a lecturer, uh, he helped me get into college. He helped me get a job. And he believed in me. And he helped. He believed in young people. And so I think that, that, was, that was really fundamental in my life. I think another one would be the guy that I bought the business off, uh, Anthony. Yeah, he was, a big, he was a big person in my life for many, many years ex-partner at KPMG, a very, very talented man, uh, bought business off him. So yeah, I think he would be one. And my wife, my wife brings, so Vicky brings a completely different perspective. 
Vicky's a creative. She ran her own marketing agency, highly creative. I'm very process, you know, data-driven, uh, very structured. And, and she brings a completely different perspective on a problem. And, and that, I think if you have that in your life and you're open to it, that can be really powerful. Like, I don't know if I'd have built the Piscari business if it hadn't been for Vicky's thinking around, why don't you turn the coin over and help smaller companies sell to bigger companies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. When you have that, and if you can tap in it into it, because I see a lot of people who have a spouse that have a different perspective. I think most of us would say that our spouses do have different perspectives yeah. on many things. But I think many of us are not able to tap into it. We just yeah. see the tension and we just want to manage the pain that as a result. But if you can really tap into it and leverage it and use it, then it could be super uh, powerful. It doesn't mean that you have to, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in what you do with a mentor is you ask them the question, they give you their view, you talk to a few people, and then you decide. You may not decide to do what they say, but you've taken some input. You have to make a decision. It is your decision. Do not blame anyone else for a decision you have made. Yeah. Take on, on your decisions or take responsibility. That's the only way forward. But that's awesome. I really enjoyed uh, our discussion. So I'm sure many of our listeners will want to learn more. How can they reach you? Where can they get more information about what you do and maybe connect connect with you? So two areas. You can look on LinkedIn. So Mike Lander on LinkedIn. You'll find me fairly easily, I think. And another thing is if you go to piscari.com, P-I-S-C-A-R-I.com, piscari.com slash guide, G-U-I-D-E. Um, there's a guide there. There's a blog. And that's all about the kind of stuff that I do. Awesome. Well, piscari.com slash guide, definitely yep. a place to visit. It was great having you, Mike. Very interesting businesses you've been involved in and, and loved your perspectives. And for our listeners, we'll continue next week. Have a great day. Thank you, Steve. Really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed that. Thank you. This was the Prof Serve Traction Podcast with Steve Prada. To learn how your professional services or technology business could break through the ceiling with EOS, visit tractionequity.com.